Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now let's get to Beatty, and we'll get to game one and game two. Why are they calling him up now? It's kind of a rhetorical question. Like, what made today, Sunday into Monday, in the midst of this West Coast trip, what made this the moment? Was it Billy Epler watching Brett Beatty firsthand in Syracuse? Was it Escobar's continuing struggles and the idea that Buck will just turn Escobar and Guillaume into a platoon at third base, and we've seen signs of that? What was it? What made Was it just that it became so undeniable? And by the way, that's my answer. My answer on why now is that it became undeniable. Brett Beatty was so freaking good at AAA, playing at such a high level offensively, and from what I hear, playing fine defensively, that when you take that and combine it with how bad the third base situation has become with the Mets, it became undeniable. But the thing I love, and I remember saying this to you about a week or two ago, when we talked about when are they going to call him up? When's it going to happen? I remember saying one thing that's important is don't do it when you're losing. Don't do it when things are bad. Because then he comes up here and he has to be a savior. And what I love about this, Pete, not that the Mets knew they were going to win Sunday, but even if they didn't, they would have won a series against Oakland. They would have won a series against San Diego. They would have won a series against Miami. The Mets have won every series they've played this year outside of the disaster in Milwaukee. So even if they had lost this finale, you could say, hey, the Mets are still playing well in terms of wins and losses. And I like that because I was afraid that they were going to make this call, this decision to bring up Brett Beatty in the midst of a losing streak, in the midst of this team needs a savior. And while they didn't hit the crap out of the ball against the A's on Saturday and Sunday, I think on a four-game winning streak, coming off a sweep of Oakland, I don't think anyone's going to look at Brett Beatty as a savior. They're going to look at him as an upgrade, which is what he is. No doubt. And and that's that's been the struggle this whole time is why what's the excuse of why Beatty wasn't even on this team to begin with and whatever. They talked about the defense and uh and we we can see this team this team as a whole right now. We talk about Brandon Emmo. you go back to that, that the the game today. The defense has been on a different level. So you take away the fact that Brett Brady's coming in here just to not even talk about his bat, just the defensive skills. It's still 
what's been going on with Escobar at third base, Beatty's still on par or not an upgrade. Then you talk about the bad aspect of it, and you're right. And the whole thing is it's not about putting him in a pressure situation. But here's the thing is, are they stupid to ask this, Ev? But are they going to use him every day? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This one I'm not concerned about. He's going to play every day. I think the only question about him and his usage is going to be the lefty situation. Like, does he play every day against lefties? And while the Mets have run into a lot of lefties so far this season, to the point where Tommy Pham has actually played more than Daniel Vogelbach. Like, Tommy Pham has more plate appearances this season than Daniel Vogelbach has. And a part of that is how many lefties they faced. They are going to face one left-hander in Los Angeles. You may have heard of the man. His name is Clayton Kershaw. So they're going to get one lefty in L.A. and face two righties, Dustin May in the opener, Noah Syndergaard in the finale. And I'm not even going to talk about the Syndergaard thing. Who cares? He hasn't been on the team in a couple of years. He ducked him last year. Whatever. They're facing Noah Syndergaard on Wednesday. Yippity-doo-dah. But that's the, the fair question about Beatty. Will they play him against left-handed pitching? Um, my guess, I, my, my guess is actually, yeah. You know, believe it or not, I'm actually on the side of, I don't think they're going to F around with this kid. I think he's going to come up here and he's going to play every single day. Kershaw's a tough lefty to face though. So maybe, maybe, maybe that's the day to sit him. I, I will give you one quick story about the whole, should he play against lefties thing? Michael Conforto uh, obviously got off to a pretty good start in his career. And the year he got sent down, it all turned when he faced Madison Bumgarner. And I remember wanting Conforto to play, play against everybody, play against every lefty. So they gave him a shot against Bumgarner. Bumgarner schooled him, and it led to a massive slump. Now, I can't say that that specific game led to the slump, but it felt that way. So sometimes, as much as we scream and yell, play him against everybody, you got nothing to lose. It, a bad day against the tough lefty could turn it into a massive slump. So... You'll want to be smart about it, but I think the way Beatty's hitting right now, he's so locked in that maybe you just play him against everybody for a few weeks and hope that you can ride that hot streak that he's put together, not just through the first few weeks down in Syracuse, but what he did back in spring training. And the other thing, too, is back to your other point of, like, why it take right now to happen. Um, you know, Billy going to Syracuse to go check out this team, I mean – did he really have to make that trek to see how well they're doing? Does he not have I – maybe mean, he doesn't have Twitter. I think he does, though. You don't see the highlights every day between Mauricio, between Vientos, and Beatty. Every freaking day, they're crushing the ball. And, and Billy, Billy, MLB app now shows all the minor league games. A lot of Met fans, myself included, I've checked out some Syracuse games, and I've seen what we've all known which is that all the kids are tearing it up. I think the simple answer is it became undeniable. It got to the point where Brett Beatty was saying it with his actions, with his play, not his words, what do you need me to do down here? Like what? I was in the major leagues last year, remember? I was up there. And I know I, I didn't perform at my best. He did it a home run in his first major league at bat, which was kind of cool. But I think it just became... The guys earned the trip up here. And what I like about this, and I know there are going to be some bad fans who are going to deny this, I don't think Eduardo Escobar is completely done. Like, I, I wouldn't DFA him. I wouldn't just say, I oh, sucks, get rid of him. But I love now kind of shifting him into that bench role because 
We talked about this last week. When Tomas Nito has to come off your bench as a pinch hitter, that's a problem with your bench. Say what you want about Escobar and how he's played so far and the start he got off to last year. You put him up in a big spot. Give me him nine out of ten times over Tomas Nito. So I think it actually strengthens your bench. And who knows? Maybe it takes the pressure off him. Maybe he starts to hit. I think he'll still get at-bats. I don't think he just goes into the oblivion. The question's going to be, and it's the the question we had all through spring training, how do the Mets make this work roster-wise? In the short term, you just send Budo down. You have the extra position player. But long-term, they're going to want the eight guys out of the bullpen. I, I got to make this clear, Pete. You could yell at me. You can't take Tim LaCastro off this team. I'm sorry. He's way too valuable. And you could tell me he's 0 for 8. He doesn't hit. Dude, every time they put this man in as a pinch runner and Saturday's game, and we'll get to it, is a great example. Tim LaCastro won the game with his legs for the New York Mets on Saturday afternoon. I'm sorry. He did. I don't know if they go ahead and take the lead in the seventh, if not for Tim LaCastro. So I think it's important to have that designated pinch runner. So the easy answer is, ah, you just get rid of Timmy LaCastro. I don't want to do it. Do you want to do it? No, I have the answer, and it's not going to – it's going to make some people happy. It's not going to make the Mets organization happy. Um, it's Daniel Vogelback. It's, it's, his time has come as a, as a – it's, it's over. It's, he is not productive enough. As a power hitter, the one thing he hasn't done in the – however many games he's been a Met, he hasn't shown power. He can show he can get on base. But he doesn't play a position, and if you're telling me who do I prefer, Tim LaCastro or Daniel Vogelback, yes, Vogelback maybe as a pinch hitter, but that's one element of the game. And LaCastro gives speed, and he gives the defensive depth in the outfield, which Vogelback does nothing on that. On that I wouldn't do that either. I wouldn't do that either because even though he hasn't hit for pop yet this season and really hasn't done much offensively, which I can't deny – I wouldn't give up on him because I still think he's going to be your designated hitter against right-handed pitching for now. That can change. I think Ronnie Mauricio is going to become the next prospect pounding on the door. Mark Vientos too. So I'm not saying this is forever, but in the short term, I wouldn't do that either. I, I think that you have, you have two options and either one of them are great. I'll be honest with you. One is what I've been screaming about. And I know the Mets don't want that. And that's just, deal with an extra position player and use that seventh spot in your bullpen as kind of a, a shuttle service. Okay. Right now, Buto goes down, which makes perfect sense because Buto can't be used for five more days. He's not remaining in the rotation unless something is wrong with Max Scherzer. So Buto goes down. So in the short term, great Beatty's up. Buto goes down. I think at some point, Yakobonis goes down. You replace him with another pitcher. Denny Reyes is going to stay up here because he's pitching so well. But I think you can kind of work around the seven relievers, but it's not going to be sustainable if their starting pitching isn't going deep into games, and it's not. Nobody is. Even when guys pitch well, you know, Tyler McGill going five or six innings is not enough. You're going to need to mix in a seven, eight, dare I say what Garrett Cole did on Sunday, a nine-inning performance. The other option is Luis Guillorme because he has options. Because you can send him down. Do you lose a lot in terms of 
versatility. You do a little bit, especially because of how good he is defensively. But you're looking for offense. That's what this is about. You're looking for a little for pop. You're looking for more production. And you get that with Beatty on the roster. And you don't lose that with Giorme going into the minors. But either way, very exciting news. I mean, I think we're all pumped up about it because it became, like I said, undeniable. Brett Beatty needed to be here. And he did. Quickly on the roster, and then we'll get to game one and two. Steven Nagosik from the Friday game gets a line drive. What I thought was off his ass, it wasn't. It was off his elbow. And he's on the injured list, which sucks, because I think Nagosik kind of fit that longish reliever role pretty well. And the Dennis Santana era is over. We hardly knew we hardly knew you, Dennis. He actually got the victory on Friday. And his congratulations was, get the hell out of here. So those are your roster moves. And one other thing, kind of the final thing from the finale of this series from Sunday, the Mets won an extra inning game. In 2022, the Mets were 10 and two in extra inning games. In 2021, a year in which they finished under 500, they were 11 and seven in extra inning games. So since the 2021 season with this weird Fugazi Manfred man on second, the New York Mets are 22 and nine in extra inning games. Does not change my view on the rule, but the Mets have, they've done a pretty good job with the Manfred man on second. Do you like that rule, by the way, Pete? We've never had a broad discussion about it. I'm not a fan, and th- that'll be a different discussion about how quick people want games to finish. They don't want the games dragging on. Uh, we're not, we haven't even gotten to it, maybe not this podcast, but the complaints now about the pitch clock and how fast games are going and well, how people, people okay. cannot, compl- cannot stand a two-hour and seven-minute game at Yankee Stadium. That, that's okay, so the Yankees have been flying through games, and they had a two-hour, seven-minute game on Sunday afternoon. Real quick, this three-game series against Oakland, hear me out. Game one. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Three hours and 29 minutes. Game two, 246, which is not long, but certainly longer than the average. Game three, three hours, three minutes. So we as Met fans have not dealt with quick games, at least in this series. Listen, 17 walks by the A's, and it was a three-hour and 30-minute game. Oh, That's yes. pretty quick. That's pretty quick for 17 walks. <laughs> I was telling my wife that. I said, listen, if there was no pitch clock, especially with Familia not throwing strikes in the ninth, that's a four-and-a-half-hour game. But, okay, let's get to the opener of this series. This was, on so many levels, one of the most bizarre baseball games I've ever seen. You've got the Met booth right off the top explaining to us that a possum was living in the road broadcast booth. And Gary, in the most eloquent way he can, says, yeah, so the possum crapped a lot. It smells so bad, we needed to move to another booth. So we've got that right off the top. We have them telling us halfway through, right after I wrote Ring Central Coliseum in my scorebook, 
that it isn't Ring Central Coliseum anymore. Now it's back to the Oakland Alameda Coliseum. We got Kodai Senga, who was okay for a while in this game. We got Kodai Senga warming up in the bullpen in the middle of the game because the Met half innings are taking too long. I don't know if I've ever seen that before. We have Oakland A's security with 11,000 people in attendance taking away the ghost forkball signs that the Met fans are trying to hang up. And then you've got the middle finger guy. The middle finger guy is my favorite. And I don't know how many people saw this because this was the ninth inning. So the game was way out of reach and it was one o'clock in the morning. But the SNY cameras now show us this bearded gentleman holding a foam finger. He's just holding it. He looks awkward. He looks depressed. He's in Oakland. Of course he's depressed. He just had to pee in a trough at Oakland Alameda Coliseum while watching his baseball team issue 17 walks. You'd be depressed too. See, so standing with, with the foam finger, and Gary and Ronnie make some comment, like, oh, look at him with his foam finger. Familia <laughs> proceeds on the next pitch to walk his fourth straight guy. Okay. They flash back to the dude with the foam finger. And he just like, I don't even know if he knows the camera's on him. He just picks up his other hand, the one that doesn't have the foam finger, and just goes and gives a middle finger. And SNY quickly flashes it away. And I am cracking up. I'm laughing my ass off. Like, what just happened? And I don't know if he knew the camera was there. Maybe he did. And he's like, all right, stop showing me. Stop showing me. Okay, I'll make you stop showing me. You're number one. Or it was just a weird coincidence. But this this was bizarre. And oh, yeah, there's another bizarre moment. So Jairus Familia is pitching the ninth inning. Now, Jairus Familia came in the eighth inning, pitched a one, two, three inning. He barely broke a sweat. So it's looking like, all right, he's going to get through this real quick. Even got the first guy out in the ninth inning. And he's ahead of Lindor 0-2. He then throws four straight out of the zone, walks him. Okay, no big deal. Then he walks Alonzo. Then he walks McNeil. Then he walks Vogel back. And a run scores. And Kotze, no, it was the ace pitching coach. I don't think it was Mark Kotze. Comes out to the mound to say, all right, jackass, you've walked four guys in a row. We're losing this game by a million runs. Can you please throw a strike? The A's don't realize they've run out of mound visits because they use them all during their cavalcade of walks. So the umpires now start meeting over this. Boy, if Keith Hernandez was doing this game, he would have had a coronary. And Gary's like, oh, I guess they may review if that was ball four or not. That wasn't the problem. The problem was they didn't have any mound visits yet left, and someone came to the mound. So the umpires, Dan Ayasanya, goes to Kotze and says, I'm sorry. You need to take Familia out of the game. That's the penalty. So they take him out of the game and they bring in their backup catcher, Carlos Perez, to pitch. And that's when Escobar drives in a two-run double. So Escobar has got four RBIs this season, never gets a hit, faces a 48-mile-an-hour meatball from a backup catcher, and he's like, what can I do? And he rips a two-run double. Oh, my God. I, and the only reason I watch this is because I'm sick. Because I, I, I'm i a sick, sick human. I shouldn't have watched any of this. The first five innings were bad enough. 
And by bad, it wasn't bad because the Mets were winning. Like when they score six runs in the second, that's not bad. When the A's cut it to six to three, and then they score six more in the top of the fifth, it's not bad, but it's bad, if that makes any sense. Like the results were good. I'm happy, but the baseball was bad. Like no human being wants to watch 17 walks, but it helped our team. And so when Hogan Harris, who I don't think is a real human when I saw his name, but apparently he is, makes his major league debut, walks five effing guys, hits a guy, gets sent down after the game. I don't know if that's a real human, but the Mets were at least able to take advantage of it. But my God, that was an abomination of a baseball game. Do you feel bad for the Oakland A's fans? Which is, listen, and for all the bad years the Mets have had, which we've had plenty, I don't think it's ever been this low. Where it's like, oh my God, like we need to get up and move the team. And I don't like, I, there were how many people in, in the three games in Oakland? How many people do you think were there in total? Uh, they announced like 11,000 on Friday, 12,000 on Saturday, a little bump on Sunday because they were honoring the 73 A's. But how many people were actually there? There may not have been more than 35,000 for the three games. That's and they those they must be committed fans because or maybe they should be committed because that to me it's it's just so the team is so putrid it's a disgusting ballpark everything about it is just bad yeah it, the impression and Gary and Ron talked about it on the broadcast my dad called me up and told me about it basically said this this is a disgrace the baseball needs to change and there are a lot of issues with the Oakland A's my biggest issue is that they're owned by a billionaire, and yet they've tried to lose on purpose, basically, for the last two years. That's what they've done. And it's not to tank. I think it's to leave Oakland. I I think that's what's going on. So I don't know when they're going to end up in Vegas and when they're going to get a new stadium. And magically, this billionaire owner will start spending when that happens. But yeah, it was sad. I mean, they're, they're a disgraceful franchise right now. They've had success recently. They obviously had success during the money ball era, but even more recently, they've made the postseason. But what they've done the last two years is embarrassing. With that said, you got to beat them. You know, it's not my problem. I'm not an Oakland A's fan. But yeah, we never experienced anything this bad because as much as we killed the Wilpons, they didn't have a $30 million payroll. They weren't just trading guys off. They weren't trying to move the team out. So yeah, we had our own issues. But they are, they're putrid. They're a horrible, horrible baseball team right now. And yeah, if you're an Oakland A fan, you almost think that your baseball team's going the way of your football team. They're going to end up in Vegas. And then it's up to you if you want to keep rooting for them. I thought it was sad that they honored the 73 team on Sunday and they didn't even get that big of a bump of a crowd. And I think a part of the problem is when you honor a team that was 50 years ago, the only people that remember it are people who are senior citizens. And that's not a knock on anybody who's a senior citizen. If you're listening right now, good for you, but you can't expect 30,000 people to show up because most humans, most people who don't remember something, even if they appreciate history, aren't going to show up for an event that honors that team. The only people that are going to show up are people that remember it. So you're basically saying you better be 65 or older if you want to come to this event. And, And that's really what it was. But I'm glad the Mets won. Kodai Senga, I kind of throw the outing out. I'm not trying to make excuses for him, but it was so weird. It was so much time in between half innings. 
when he starts warming up in the bullpen, I thought that was a warning sign. And he did that before the fifth. And remember the situation going into the fifth. He had just allowed the two-run home run to Langoliers in inning earlier. But he had the lead. And if he could get three outs in the fifth inning, he's on pace to get a, get a victory. And he got the first two guys out in the fifth inning. Gives up the home run to Diaz. Walks Connor Capel. His pitch count's 96. And Buck Showalter says, I'm sorry. I, I, I can't. I know you probably want to win a game, but pitch count of 96. I just gave you two batters. You couldn't get either one of them out. And Senga gets pulled in the fifth inning. We mentioned that was the game where Nagosik got hurt, got hit by a line drive, and the Mets won. But it was it was a really, really bad baseball game. I'm trying to think if there was anything else from this game that I missed. I got the uh, pitching change because of the mound visits, the possum that lives in the booth. You got the middle finger guy. Middle finger guy. <laughs> I think there were two other people that were having sex in center field. I don't know if I mentioned that one. I think they were going at it in center field. Good for them. I mean, why not? Uh, yeah, I think I have it covered. Oh, and the guy's dancing. I mean, just dancing all freaking night. Like, what are you doing? Are you paid by the A's? They must be paid by the A's. They must be like paid uh, mascots. Yeah, they're sitting there dancing the entire game. Their team's losing 17 to 6, and they're dancing to just like, horrible drums being banged. Is that like Fireman Ed or now? <laughs> Don't disrespect Fireman Ed <laughs> like that now. Come on. 